Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I have a case that blew my mind because the police almost charged the wrong people with this crime. Today's story is about an incredibly gifted man that was shockingly beaten to death, and although police had a really, really good couple of leads that seriously looked like they were the killer, they all actually were cleared. And it takes years, a couple wrong arrests, an entirely new police task force, and a $50,000 reward posted before the police found out who the perpetrator of this crime really was. And the person had been involved from the very beginning of the first investigation. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I love true crime. I love having you guys listen in on these cases because it's just nice to get people that just get it, you know? Don't forget to leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you, everybody, who participated in the giveaway. If you guys haven't already, go check out Storytime Slayer on Facebook. And that's going to be story underscore time underscore slayer on Instagram. I post content that goes along with all these crimes as well as my YouTube video uploads. I am on YouTube. That's under Storytime Slayer as well. And okay, I gave you my spill. Let's jump in. Eugene Franklin Malove was born in 1947, so that would make him 56 when he was murdered. Eugene was actually from Norwich, where this crime took place. He'd been born and raised there. He did, however, meet his wife, Joanne, in Boston. Um, I don't know what he was doing in Boston at the time, but Joanne was in college at Boston University when they met. They were young, early 20s, and in 1970, the couple got married. 1974, they have their first child, a daughter named Kimberlyn, and then in 1979, they have a son named Ethan. So I have to mention that Eugene is a motherfucking genius, okay? He's got a bachelor and master's degree in science all by 1970, okay, by his early 20s, an arrow and astronomical degree from MIT. And if if that's not enough, you guys, he seriously received his master's in environmental and health sciences from Harvard in 1975. Amazing. He's published his writings and studies. He's super accomplished. And he actually taught for MIT and Boston University during his life. I don't even like know him and I'm so proud of him. That's crazy. His passion was with alternative energy sources, in particular coal fusion. And on top of all of that, being a genius, a husband, a father, an author, a teacher, uh, Eugene is also a landlord. Uh, Just to one house, it had been his childhood home that he just didn't want to part with. Even though him and his family moved from Norwich, Connecticut to New Hampshire, he still wanted to keep the family, the family house. So Norwich is in eastern Connecticut. It's an old milk town. It's not fancy by any means. And it is said to have had a significant socioeconomic gap, meaning that there's a very big difference between the rich people and the poor people in this town. So why are we talking about Eugene? Okay, so 911 gets a phone call from a woman in Norwich, Connecticut. She was actually on her way to view an apartment and she tells 911 she saw a man lying on the ground badly beaten that looked to be dead. 
When police arrived on scene and asked her for a statement, she said that she was on her way to view an apartment for rent and nearby she saw a for rent sign and called the number on it. Somebody answered it was a woman and the woman said, yes, the house is for rent and my husband should actually be there somewhere if you just want to go over to the property and I don't know, knock on the door or look around. You can actually speak with him about it if you want to. So the woman decided okay, yeah, I'm going to do that. And that is how she found the deceased man. Now, something that stood out to me is all this shit happened at like after 10 p.m. So I don't know who the hell's going to look at apartments and calling people at 10 p.m., but damn, do not call me. Okay, that's, whoo, that's late. Okay, so when police and paramedics arrived, they confirmed that the man, in fact, was deceased and he appeared to have been beaten to death. He had several, over 32 lacerations, lots of blood, and shoe prints indicating that he was kicked and stomped on in this violent attack. Now, the victim's shoes were missing, as well as his wallet, jewelry that he usually wore. And so police obviously were like, okay, this is a robbery, but this is significantly more violent than your standard robbery. And it looked like a personal attack, right? Like this was a vendetta. Like I said, lots and lots of cuts, abrasions, and bruising, lots of blood. There is actually a trail that starts at the side of the house and through the backyard of the residency that Eugene was found at. No one appeared to be living in the house. It looked like it was a trashed house. You know what I mean? Like when people get evicted or just abandoned houses and then they leave a bunch of random ass shit and trash behind. At the same time, investigators said it appeared that someone had been working to clean up the house. So police are kind of trying to mull over, okay, what is this guy doing here? Whose house is this? What 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 could have been taken place when this attack happened? And then they figured out, okay, the man is likely the homeowner which he was. The house that Eugene was at was his family's home that he just never wanted to get rid of, so he rented it out to people. As far as the crime scene goes, because there was so much random shit lying around, like scraps of wood and metal, bicycle parts, bricks, lawn hoses, etc., police didn't really know what the murder weapon was. Like, there's no obvious gunshot. This isn't a stab in the chest. And there's blood on several things that are just setting around the crime scene that I mentioned. Like, there's blood on a brick. There's blood on a lawn hose. Those items were collected. And they also collected a keychain from the crime scene. It looked to have been left there on accident. Like, maybe it was dropped by the perpetrators during this attack. Police, like I said, they figure out who owns the house, Eugene Malove, and he is confirmed to be their victim. So naturally, police ask his wife, Joanne, what all Eugene was doing that day. What was he even doing over there at that house? Joanne said that morning, Eugene was having a dumpster delivered and wanted to clean up the property for new tenants. He drove the family minivan, which Joanne described to police and police said that the minivan was not at the property they found Eugene deceased at. And Joanne was like, no, he drove the minivan though. So obviously the van's stolen, right? And this is a good start. So police put out a bolo on Eugene's van and they canvassed the neighborhood asking people questions. Um, One man said he saw Eugene mowing the lawn in the afternoon time and everything seemed really normal. And he said that he knows the van was gone by at least 810 because he'd like looked around outside and noticed the van was gone. 
The lawn also was freshly mowed. There was grass on top of everything except the keychain. The keychain was on a bunch of cut grass. So that tells police, okay, the neighbor is at least telling the truth about Eugene mowing the lawn. So he likely did leave by 810. That's probably true. Now the bolo came back with a hit. The van was parked seven miles away in the Foxwood Casino employee parking lot. The van was completely searched for hair, blood, fibers, prints, anything, and then ceased and kept in the police lot. They couldn't find jack shit in this van, you guys. Surveillance cameras were too low of quality at Foxwood Casino to pull information from. So I'm sure police were hoping they could see like a getaway car or um, make out a description of the driver. But no, they couldn't get any details from these security footage. What's the point in security footage then? So everything's kind of a dead end right now. Next, police talk to Eugene's wife and family. I don't know who they mean when they say family, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume like kids, in-laws, anybody in contact with Eugene. But regardless, everybody they spoke to had an alibi and nobody in the family seemed to have any real motive. Eugene's wife couldn't think of anybody off the top of her head that would want to do this to her husband. But then police asked her about previous tenants. Joanne said that Eugene had actually evicted a couple named Pat and Roy two weeks before he was murdered. The couple was evicted because they hadn't paid their rent in six months. Eugene tried really hard to work with them, but I mean, seriously, enough is enough. Like, I agree. Six months, get your ass out. So police first find one of the Anderson children. Um, and that was their son, Chad Schaefer. And they wanted to speak to him to gather some information about Pat and Roy. Those were the tenants. So they wanted to see if he could give them any information about the last time maybe they spoke with Eugene and how they left off with one another. And Chad said the last time his parents spoke to Eugene was when they served them an eviction. And Chad claimed, though, that there was no animosity between Eugene and his parents. And when they asked Chad where he was the night Eugene died, he maintained that he was at home with his fiance Candace and newborn baby. They just had a baby. Candace, of course, corroborates this story for police. And he also gave police his new address. And off they went to go speak to Pat and Roy. Now, when the police speak with Pat and Roy Anderson, they said, We have no ill will towards Eugene. This wasn't us. When asked where they were that day, Eugene was murdered. Pat said that she was at work. She worked for a nursing home and her whereabouts were corroborated. And Roy had been working at the Foxwood Casino from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. Now, as suspicious as the van being coincidentally left at Foxwood employee parking lot It was unlikely Roy because of the time of death was after 5 p.m. And after speaking with other employees at Foxwood, they could definitely verify Roy was at work all night. So then police ask if Pat and Roy have any roommates. And they did, in fact, sublease. Um, One of their subleasers was a man named Lenny Coy. And apparently Lenny Coy had actually been living with the Andersons when they were living in Eugene's rent house. Now, when police asked where Lenny was, the Andersons said they didn't know because he'd just randomly gotten up and moved out of town. 
So, of course, this is obviously suspicious due to the timing, but apparently police were familiar with this Lenny guy. He'd come across their radar before, not for murder, just for petty mischievous crimes. Um, So police are able to track Lenny down and he's in Michigan working on a farm. They try to speak to him, but he adamantly denies having had any contact or involvement with Eugene. He was just a subleaser from the Andrews and you know, police don't have any evidence on Lenny, so they kind of have to let that one go temporarily. So up until this point, police were waiting on an autopsy and were sort of at a standstill. But when they do get the autopsy, it is shocking, okay? It is shocking. The ME said that Eugene's cause of death was that his trachea had been crushed, So he was severely beaten and it wasn't that he was suffocated. His throat was literally crushed. Some people thought maybe this was an organized hit on Eugene for his research on coal. Um, I guess his research could have a significant impact on the oil and gas industry. But police quickly wrote this off because this did not seem like a professional hit. It was very messy, uh, beating somebody to death, leaving them in the yard, dropping their keys, parking the car 15 minutes away. It just doesn't scream professional level hit coming from a multi-billion dollar industry. The police get lucky and they catch a break when an eyewitness comes into the police station. He was a shuttle driver for a nearby hotel and said that sometime between 8 and 10 p.m. he saw a man driving a van similar to the one Eugene had. And the man had socks on his hands, which he found really strange. Even though officers did an extensive beyond thorough search of the van, police decide, let's go check the van one more time. Maybe there's some scrap of evidence. And they do find a plastic bag. And they were really surprised that they didn't take this the first time they searched the van. But whatever, they find a plastic bag and they go ahead and take it in as evidence and they run it to the lab. The forensic team is able to lift one fingerprint off this bag one so they run the fingerprint in their criminal fingerprint system and it came back as a match a match y'all okay so the guy's name was Nicholas Gardner he had a history of car robbery now when they questioned him about if he broke into Eugene's van Nick didn't even deny breaking into the van in fact he was extremely casual and nonchalant about the whole thing But then when police mentioned that whomever stole this van is a murder suspect, Nick's entire nonchalant attitude changed. See, Nick did admit to breaking into the car, but he didn't break into the car until after it was in the police impound lot. And that's got to be how the bag got left in there. So if this is true, this means that Nick broke into the van after the murder and police had towed the van to their lot. Now, Nick had no idea then that the van was evidence in a murder case. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, guys, that's why we don't get our fingerprints on things that the police confiscate, Nick. So police already having known they did an extensive search of the van the first time it does now make sense how they would have missed the plastic bag police do still check their surveillance cameras in the impound lot and they fingerprint surrounding cars in the impound lot and they sure as hell figure out yeah nick in fact was sneaking into the police impound lot and breaking into the cars 
ballsy, ballsy, ballsy. His fingerprints were all over surrounding vehicles. So this is another dead end that seemed so close. And then police get a phone call. Okay, so police get a call from the New Britain PD. It's 40 minutes away. The officer was calling because he came across two men asleep in a stolen vehicle, and there was visible traces of blood smudged in the car they were in. The car happened to have been stolen the same night that Eugene was murdered and his van was stolen. And I guess the officer knew the van was dropped off somewhere, so he was wondering if this could be a possible connection, and maybe the blood in the car was Eugene's. Uh, Eugene could have scratched them in trying to defend himself possibly. So these two men are arrested for Grand Theft Auto and they're brought in. They are Joseph Riley and Gary McAvoy. McAvoy. They need to be proven guilty or cleared by police. So they speak to the men in separate interrogation rooms. And when they ask about the blood in the car and why both men have scratches on them, because both of them have scratches on their arms and legs, both men maintain that they got into a fight while in the stolen car. Now, they asked both men if they were connected to Eugene's death. And Joseph blurts out, well, did the old man get the shit kicked out of him? Which, I mean, that's super suspicious because Eugene was beaten to death and nobody had told either of the men that. When police spoke with Gary in the other interrogation room and told him that they were investigating him for the murder of Eugene, Gary had a total meltdown and panic attack. He was literally hyperventilating and saying that he wanted to kill himself and crying, just totally lost it. So police bring in the same eyewitness that they spoke to before, the one who said he saw a man matching Eugene's van description and that the driver had gloves on. So reports say this eyewitness actually picked Joseph out of a photo lineup they gave him. So police decide to run both men's DNA against hair fibers that they'd found in the van. They'd previously ran the fibers, but they never came back as a match. And this time when they run the hair fiber against Gary's hair, it is a match. I'm sorry. I don't know why I called it a hair fiber. It is hair. I know what hair is. It is hair. Thank you. Police press charges against both these men, Gary and Joseph. And it seems like a solid case. They have an eyewitness. They have DNA. But then police get a phone call from the state forensic lab. And the state forensic lab was calling to say they made a mistake and Gary's hair was not found in the victim's van. See, the case numbers got mixed up. So they accidentally tested Gary's hair against itself. And of course, he matched his own hair sample. But then when they ran it, against the correct sample he was not a match so these two men actually are released from custody are cleared of any involvement in this murder and sent home could you imagine I mean that is what movies are made out of right so the case goes cold but this time it goes cold for several years four years pass until a task force is put on Eugene's cold case. They decide to work the entire case starting with day one. And this is when the $50,000 reward is offered to the public for information leading to Eugene's murder's capture. So after three weeks of this billboard and this investigation, a witness comes into the police station named Jill. I don't know if that's a changed name or not. So we'll just call her Jill anyway. So Jill is saying she has information about the murder. She is a friend of Chad Schaefer. 
Now remember, Chad is Patty and Roy's son, the people who Eugene evicted. And she actually stayed with Chad and his fiance, Candace, for some time. And she noticed that Candace got really anxious when reports about the murder of Eugene were broadcasted on the news. Jill said Candace told her the night Eugene was murdered, Chad came home with blood on his clothes. Now remember, Chad's alibi was that he was home with Candace and Candace corroborated that. So obviously they could have lied. So next, police want to talk to Jill's boyfriend, Keishan, because Keishan, I guess, had told Jill that Chad confessed to him about the murder, and that's what Keishan told police. So police start surveillance on Chad and Candace. Um, they had separated some time in the last four years, and they did not have an amicable divorce I don't think they were actually married but it was not an amicable split up right officers really applied pressure to Candace to tell them everything about Chad and his involvement in Eugene's murder now Candace slow rolled it y'all she said well the keychain that you guys found at the crime scene had been hanging up on the wall in mine and Chad's apartment all those years ago I'm assuming police showed Candace a photo evidence of the keychain and asked her if it was hers, if she recognized it. I don't know how else she would have seen it. I don't know if it was broadcasted. Police kind of felt like Candace knew more. So they pressed her harder and slowly she unraveled what happened. And Chad had been hanging out with an old friend. It was actually his cousin, Moselle Brown. Moselle had a criminal record. According to Candace, the day Eugene was murdered, Chad had been getting calls all day from his mom because she'd heard that Eugene was throwing all their shit away in a dumpster. I guess Pat was at work, but someone saw and called her and told her that Eugene was at the rental property and that he'd rented the dumpster. So it sounded to me, from what I understand, Chad was supposed to have gotten all his parents' shit out of the house for them, but he never did. And that's why his mom was calling and bitching to him over and over about it. Like, go get my shit, dude. So Chad has Moselle Brown come pick him up so they can go take care of Eugene. And when they get to the old rent house, they confront Eugene. And Eugene's like, fuck yeah, I'm throwing your stuff away. Like, come on, it's been here for two weeks, guys. And Chad and Moselle begin beating the shit out of Eugene, right? And the two men end up just leaving him for dead. And they go back to Chad's apartment and they tell Candace what they did. Now, police knew this was not the end of it. They could just tell by Candace's demeanor. So they press her harder for her to tell the truth. And that's when Candace admitted, okay, after they came back to the apartment and told me that they'd killed Eugene, they asked me to come back with them to the crime scene to clean it up. And so she did. I wonder if they took the baby because remember, she just had a baby. Anyway, so she agrees and she goes back to the crime scene with them. Only Eugene was not dead. He was just very badly beaten. So the two men decide they have to kill him. Candace claims that she didn't agree to murdering Eugene and that the two men said, well, if you don't go along with it, you'll be next. I highly doubt that. I don't believe that for a second. But either way, Moselle is said to have been the one that ultimately stepped on and crushed Eugene's throat. Fucking cruel. So after they murder him, they try cleaning up the crime scene and Candace is the one who drives Eugene's van and drops it off in the parking lot. 
All three are tried separately for the murder of Eugene. So Moselle Brown, he's sentenced to 58 years in prison. Chad Schaefer took a plea. He gets first degree manslaughter and aggravated robbery. So he's sentenced to 25 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 17 years. And Candace Foster gets one hell of a deal for being the one who spoke up and coped to what happened. Without her, police said they had no case. So she's charged with evidence tampering and served three years in prison with a long-ass probation. Eugene's family was horrified of how short of a sentence Chad got. The son said, I was unprepared for today's result. This is an insanely short sentence for the horrific manner in which the crime was carried out. He was also free for five years after the murder. End quote. The thing I hate about this crime is how brutal the murder was for one and foremost. Awful. I feel so bad for Eugene and his family. But for two, I cannot believe how many people almost got falsely convicted for this murder. That is crazy to me. And I think that Chad's mother may have some culpability in this crime. Like, I think that she knew her son might have done this and she didn't say anything. Damn, that's cold. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Give me a review. And have a great day. Bye.